Right on. Awesome. You guys, um, if we haven't met yet, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors. Really glad you're here. Everett, Samantha, what's up, guys? Glad you're here. Wait to just, if you introduce yourself to me, I might just call you out in the middle of the group. I just haven't seen you in a while. It's fantastic to see you. Welcome. Um, you guys, we are here at Riverbend. We're all about practicing the way of Jesus together. That's um, our the reason why we exist. And so our, our dream and our hope is that as we work through the scriptures together today and as we continue by coming to the table to um, take the Lord's Supper together, that we would all collectively grow in our relationship with Jesus, become more like him. That's the aim. That's the goal. Uh, before we uh, launch into the message, I just um, wanted to briefly make mention again in our gathering, like we did last week, as of 7 a.m. this morning, the war that's unfolding in uh, the Ukraine is still unfolding and it's an absolute nightmare to our sisters and brothers in the Ukraine and this is the time for the people of Jesus to rise up and to pray. We pray for peace. We believe that matters. We believe that um, God's, uh, God answers our prayers. In fact, I got a, te- a text last night from Aaron who's there in the back and she was like, hey, let's pray and fast for a day for, for, for Ukraine. I'm like, that's a fantastic idea. Why didn't I think of that? That's amazing. So we'll, we'll get you info on that because um, I can't think of a better way to stand in solidarity. But also um, we are called to like help Help bring peace as well. Not just pray for peace, but help bring peace. And so this week I vetted a few organizations who are bringing aid uh, to the people of Ukraine. And I just wanted to let you know that they exist and that you can uh, support them financially. Um, As you know, supply lines have been cut off and people uh, don't have basic things like food and water. So there are a couple of organizations I wanted to let you know about. Um, thank you. Uh, the first one is Send Relief. By the way, both of these are Christian organizations, and they have a long track record of ethically and eff- uh, efficiently getting resources in the hands of people around the world where they, they desperately need it. And so uh, sendrelief.org is a great one. Also globalgiving.org. They both have massive campaigns going on right now, several million dollars apiece, and bringing aid to the people of Ukraine. So um, if you are feeling led to do that, I would recommend those couple of different places. Um, Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Father, we just welcome you and say thank you so much for the grace that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity um, to seek you. Lord, you say in your word that um, if we would, if, if, if your people were called by your name, would humble themselves and pray and seek your face, you would heal our land. So we just think about our world that in many places feels like it's in shambles and we just seek your face right now. We ask that you would heal. You would heal our land. And more than that, God, we just invite you to come, sort of interrupt our morning, captivate our attention, God. Inspire us with your word and would we like turn out more like you as a result of this gathering. Would you shape us from the inside out? And we pray you do that through just the pure revelation uh, of, of, of your beauty and your face, God. We wanna know you. We wanna know you, Jesus. And so we just ask that this time would be just fully focused on you. Pray against any distraction, anything that might get in the way of your word and the work that you wanna do. We just pray that you would silence all of that now. And um, God, we give you our attention in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right. Well, would you please stand with me for the reading of scripture? 
You guys were in um, the letter to the Galatians. We're about uh, five, six weeks into the series, and we've already made it to the end of chapter one. You might not think that that's, do, that's much, but for me, um, we're moving pretty fast. Today we're covering six verses, and this is Paul's autobiography. He's sort of sharing with us a little bit of his life story. So this is what the scripture says, Galatians 1 verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other, other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. And then I went to Syria and Cilicia. And I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Go ahead and find your seat. So today, um, I just want to talk to you about the wisdom and the love of a guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas was the contemporary and friend and colleague of Paul. Uh, many of you know from your study of the book of Acts, they were together um, and planted these churches in Galatia together over the course of a couple of years in the late 40s AD. And um, so they were like a fantastic duo where they were planting these churches together, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. We see that all over the scriptures, particularly in the first half of uh, the book of Acts. And Paul was kind of like the loud and upfront up guy. And then Barnabas was the one that everybody liked. He was the really likable one. By the way, don't come up to me after the gathering and tell me which one I am. I'm self-aware enough to know that already. Um, so please, I don't need your help with that, but thank you. Um, so a lot of people skip over the passage that we just finished reading because there's lots of really important and significant verses in the next couple of lines. But it's super important that we stop and look at this here because I believe we're going to get to that stuff in a minute. But, but I really genuinely believe that the Spirit has something for us today in these verses. I believe that they're here for a reason, and I also believe that they actually function in Paul's argument here in the letter to the Galatians, which if you haven't been around or you need a refresher, essentially what Paul is arguing in this first half of Galatians is that all of the families of the earth, all of the ethnos, all of the ethnicities of the earth will be united under King Jesus. And that's kind of what he's saying. And then uh, the counter, the point, if you will, is to prevent someone from belonging in the family of God because they don't uh, conform to your secondary values. That's the same thing as basically calling someone or something else king. And so it, that's sort of the headline, if you will, of the letter to the Galatians. He's saying, listen, we, we do not have the option, we do not have the right to divide over things that are not Jesus or the gospel. We cannot let secondary things become primary. We have to keep him the main and most important thing. And particularly what he's referring to in his time is the discrimination against the Gentiles. And we could give all kinds of examples of how we do the same in our life today. And so it's sort of what's in between the lines here in Paul's autobiography that I think he's really wanting to 
hammer home. And this is the wisdom and this is the love that he's learned from his friend Barnabas. And Paul's super brief here, if you, as you notice, it was just only a few lines. And uh, the reason for that is he's got a lot that he wants to say in Galatians. And they are, quite frankly, very well versed in his story already. And so Paul is just sort of very briefly tagging his autobiography in order to reestablish his credibility as a gospel guy. If you've been around, you know people have been calling into, into question his credibility, whether or not he actually knows what he's talking about. So he says, hey, if we need to go there, we'll go there. Let me tell you my story and let me tell you why I'm, a, I'm authorized by Jesus to be the messenger of the gospel. And then secondly, he's reminding us what the gospel about Jesus is actually about in the first place. His contention is that the, the first century church, particularly the church leaders in Judea, had lost the plot. And he's saying, listen, we need to get back to what Jesus taught us. And so when Paul meets Barnabas in his story, when Paul meets this guy named Barnabas, he is living in a disaster of his own making. He's living in a disaster of his own making. He's alone, he's rejected, and, and, and nobody wants him. Remember, you found out this last week, if you're new to the story, that Paul uh, had been like a really anti-Jesus religious terrorist until uh, through his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he actually became like the world's most prolific church planter. It's like this super amazing uh, transformational story of how God works and moves in the life of people. And it's just amazing. And it's universally accepted, by the way, by Christian and non-Christian uh, historians alike. No one calls into question Paul, the historicity of Paul's conversion or anything like that, because it's so well documented both in the Bible, but then also in extra biblical resources. This is a historical guy who was an opponent to the gospel, and now he becomes its greatest advocate, right? Um, so it's this incredible story of transformation. Um, also, today in the church, Paul is almost universally admired because his contribution to the New Testament is ubiquitous. He wrote at least 13 letters. Uh, almost half of the whole New Testament is written by Paul. So generally speaking, all of the church today is uh, uh, very pro-Paul. But that wasn't the case in the early church. They weren't so sure about him. And the reason for that was because they knew Paul's reputation and they knew just a few short months prior, he had uh, a plot to destroy them. He had a plot to destroy the Jesus movement by force and by killing them. So when others, when people started to say, hey, that Saul of Tarsus guy, remember him? He, he was trying to kill us. Well, now he's a Christian and now he's a Jesus follower. They were like, mm, we're not falling for that one. Like, no way, no way that that's possible. And you can't really blame them because Paul had a major trust issue, um, especially in those early years with those first Christians. So they were less than enthusiastic, to put it mildly, to invite Paul into the family of faith. They were resisting it hard. But Paul had this other problem. And the other problem was that he wasn't shy about his conversion. And immediately after he became a Jesus follower, he started going to synagogue in, in Damascus and then eventually here um, to, in, in Jerusalem. He's going to synagogue and he's talking with all of his lifelong friends about the faith of Jesus, about how Jesus is the Messiah. And this was extremely problematic. He was, had been like the golden boy of Jerusalem. He was like an Ivy League kind of guy, uh, valedictorian, top of his class, elite, exceeded all of his peers. And he was an up and comer in the, uh, in the sect of Judaism that he was a part of. And so there was, um, in all likelihood, he was, he was um, like a, an emerging leader. But now 
he has completely rejected in their eyes the faith of his childhood and he's embraced King uh, Jesus instead. And to them, that was like a deep betrayal. To them, this was a huge problem that Jesus had backed the wrong, or excuse me, that Paul had backed the wrong Messiah. So basically, they decide they want him dead three different times. In uh, Acts chapter 9 uh, alone, there are plots from Jews uh, to, to kill Paul. So this is how they did cancel culture uh, back in the first century. It's a little bit more intense than like putting you on blast on Instagram, but whatever. That's how they did things back then. And I mean, if you're just looking at this from a hopefully objective perspective, man, uh, these were just like the consequences of Paul's zeal in, in, in both directions. Maybe you can relate to that or appreciate that. His new family wouldn't accept him because they thought he was working some angle to kill them. And then his old family actually wanted him dead because he was trying to embrace the new family. This is like some Montague and Capulet style drama going on in the first century. What, no Shakespeare-like people in the house? Come on. I worked hard on that reference. That was like, oh, whatever. So Paul's got no one to blame but himself. But you can kind of feel his pain, though, right? You can kind of feel where he's coming from. He's alone, and he's in a tough spot. He doesn't have friends anymore. And he's completely isolated. So I believe that loneliness is now the greater pandemic. That wasn't the case when things got started, but now we're talking about like easing some of the mask mandates, hopefully here really soon, and social distancing is a thing of the past. We're not quarantining as long and all of that. But loneliness, I believe, is the greater pandemic because the pandemic has forced many of us into deeper isolation than ever before. Let me confirm what you probably already suspect. According to a study by the Kaiser Family Foundation, 22% of Americans say that they always or often feel lonely, lack companionship, or feel left out or isolated. 2019 survey by, by, uh, by Cigna says that 46% of Americans always or sometimes feel alone. 47% feel left out. 54% feel that no one knows them well. And it's not just an American experience. According to the BBC in 2018, nearly half of Britons over 65 consider the television or a pet their main source of company. How tragic is that? According to the Japan Times, this is all the way back in 2016, over 540,000 Japanese people, mostly young men under the age of 40, haven't left their house or interacted with anyone face-to-face -face in at least six months. I don't even know how that's possible, but evidently this is a growing concern in Japan. According to a comprehensive survey by Viceland UK in 2016, loneliness is the number one fear of young people today, ahead of losing a job or public speaking. 42% of millennial women are more afraid of loneliness than a cancer diagnosis. And this is impacting our mental and emotional health, of course, but it's impacting even more than that. Um, Neil Howe, in his article, Millennials and the Loneliness Epidemic, writes that scientists have long known that loneliness is emotionally painful and can lead to psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and even hallucinatory, hallucinatory I can say it, uh, delirium. But only recently have they recognized how destructive it is to the body. 
In 2015, researchers at UCLA discovered that social isolation triggers cellular changes that result in chronic inflammation, predisposing the lonely to serious physical conditions like heart disease, stroke, metastatic cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. Isn't that remarkable? Like, like it's crazy. And all of that research was, was collected and done and analyzed and all of that prior to 2020, prior to the pandemic. So you add to that the pandemic plus like the divisiveness of our cultural moment, historic polarization, the stuff that we talk about quite regularly here at Riverbend. Man, that has driven us into an even deeper world of isolation and being alone. Now I say all of that not to like bum you out and that's not why you came here, it's to be bummed out by like the facts. But I just wanna acknowledge that these are like the, the, this is the hill that we're, we're, we're climbing. And I doubt that many of you can um, relate to Paul's situation in one sense in that you don't have a group of extremists who want you dead. Now, of course, there are brothers and sisters on the other side of the world that we again wanna remember and appreciate in the Ukraine who are living through a life and death situation right now, losing friends and homes and all the rest. So we have a lot of sympathy for that. My guess though is here in the relative safety of Bend, Oregon, you don't feel that pressure of death that people want you dead. However, I'll bet you can relate with that sense of rejection and isolation that Paul's going through. Man, over the last year, because I work in this sort of really social profession, I've heard so many different people come to me with just genuine hurt, like I don't know what to do with this pain that I feel about friends, coworkers, family members that I'm estranged to now uh, because we disagreed about this or that. We, we had these secondary values that we just couldn't get on the same page about and now we can't even be friends. Didn't used to be the case that we would get freaked out and worked up about this stuff, but now I don't have those people in my life anymore. That's deep emotional pain. Some of you are, are feeling that isolation and it's intense. As your friend and pastor, I, I do not want to minimize the loneliness that some of you are feeling and basically what's going on in the world around us. This has been a lot, especially these last couple of years. The body is keeping score, if you will. We're carrying it around in our bodies, the stress and the anxiety of being unloved and isolated. And only time will tell how, how much our society has changed and has been influenced by this kind of isolation. Um, as, as a, at, at present, we only have a little bit of data to go off of. But again, as somebody who works in a social profession, I believe that there is a ton of picking up the pieces to do. There is a lot of work to be done. Single people, man, I, my heart goes out to you. You are wondering about like, where can I find friends? And what about like some kind of romantic partner that I wanna do life with? How do I even, how do I even like start a relationship with people anymore? Um, marriages are, 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 are struggling right now. In the last several months, I cannot even count <laughs> the amount of people who've told me that their marriage is in a, like a deep, dark place where they need a lot of help. And that's a generalization, obviously, but there are personal details to these stories that are super tricky. Kids, a lot of our young kids, if you have really young kids, like some of them have missed out on like essential stages of early childhood development because they spent the first half of their life in quarantine. Like that's a deal, that's a big, big deal. 
Churches and communities are suffering as well. Our businesses are have like falling prey to like the great resignation. Our companies are rapidly changing and culture is shifting underneath our feet faster than we can keep up. So again, not saying all of this to bum you out, just to recognize the hill that's in front of us that needs to be climbed. And I believe that God is calling the church towards one another to demonstrate how we are to forge what I'm gonna call stubbornly loyal, committed relationships with other Jesus people. Out of anyone on the planet, we should be the ones who are able to hold things in tension, to be able to say, you know what? We don't see eye to eye on that. You come from a different family of origin. You come from a different sort of cultural heritage they don't fully get. But under Jesus, we are united. We are one family. And so therefore, we can make this work. We, out of anyone on the earth, we should be the ones who are able to say, you know what? We can still love in this. It's still possible to love. It's still possible to love. And we must not withhold our familial devotion to sisters and brothers who disagree with us on secondary values. We can't let it happen. It can't happen on our watch. And there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done and Jesus is looking for people who are courageous enough, who have enough faith and enough devotion to love, enough sort of tenacity to, to want to love when it's hard and who want to listen well when it's hard. And when Paul meets Barnabas, Paul is given a master class in what this looks like. Because all we know about Barnabas at this point is that when he believed in Jesus, he was a, a rich man who decided to uh, sell all of his property and donate the proceeds to the work of, of the mission. And then we also know that Barnabas was just a nickname, and it means the son of encouragement. Do you know how nice of a human being you have to be? For your friends to be like, you know what, Lauren, your mom did like an okay job naming you, but really we think that your name would be like daughter of love or something like that. By the way, I think that's your new life goal, or at least one of your new life goals. Be so encouraging that the people around you are like, ah, we got to change your name. Like you are just the son of encouragement. That is a um, challenge. Let me know if you've accepted that challenge. Um, so, so again, Paul meets Barnabas. Again, we don't know a whole lot about him, but, he, but when this happens, he's at a low point in life. Who knows if he would have lasted another week in Jerusalem because everyone wanted him dead. The other disciples weren't willing to trust him, and this is what the scripture says. He's alone, no one wants him. He's at this turning point in life, and this is what happens. When he came to Jerusalem, this is Paul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Amen. Here's what's going on. Barnabas was the one person who was willing to befriend a villain because that's what Paul was at the time. Paul, remember, Paul had earned his reputation. Not to mention Barnabas was probably friends with Stephen, the first martyr who was killed just a couple of years prior at the hands of Paul and his friends. So for Barnabas, no one would really judge or critique him if he was like, you know what? Like if, so what if the Jews wanna kill him now? He's getting what he deserves, it's poetic justice. He was on the other side of this not two years ago. Shouldn't he suffer the same fate? 
it would be understandable. I don't think, especially in our culture, we would uh, turn down that kind of poetic justice. But while everyone else was afraid that Paul was working some angle to kill them, or maybe they were dealing with unforgiveness or whatever, Barnabas thinks, well, he says he trusts in Jesus. And if he's being truthful, then that means he's my brother now. I don't have the option to not embrace him as family. He, it mean, the scripture says he's my brother. And so I'll go find out. I'll be the one who goes on this little mission to find out if he's legit. And if he is, then I'll accept him into the family. This was a huge faith step that, 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 he was, that Barnabas was willing to take. You might actually consider that foolish because, I mean, it was a coin flip at best. Paul could have very well been trying to infiltrate the church in order to destroy them. But, but Paul... I think is not foolish. I think he's actually, excuse me, I'm talking Barnabas. I think Barnabas is not foolish. I think he's wise. I think he's calculated. I think that Barnabas would rather die believing that God does miracles like change the heart of a religious terrorist than live to be an old, safe cynic. It's like, it's not worth it. Wouldn't that be horrible if that was our legacy? That we died at a ripe old age, but we were cynical and hard-hearted? And we didn't trust people. Man, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love believes all things, hopes all things, love endures, never fails. Like that is the message of the scripture. And so, so, so Barnabas dared to have that kind of perspective at that kind of angle. And Barnabas brings Paul in out from the cold and into the warmth of the believing com community. And he stakes his reputation. He says, I'll vouch for him. He might be a villain, but he's reformed. He's a reformed villain. And now he's one of us. Again, I think that's wisdom. Remember, the main premise of the gospel is that without Jesus, we're without hope. But in Jesus, we are changed. In the language of the scriptures, the old is gone and the new is here. And so Barnabas, I believe, deep down knew intuitively from his own conviction that if he believed that for himself that he himself was a new creation, then he had to believe it for his former enemy as well. There's no two ways about it. If God's grace is reckless and open and inclusive to me, it's also inclusive to anyone else who would call on Jesus for salvation. Amen? And he had the wisdom to sort of see past the risk. Again, I don't think that Barnabas was not calculated. I think he saw the risk that was at hand. I think he weighed out the risk. And even though the, there was all of that evil sort of up in his face, but he instead saw the more pervasive power, the more redemptive power that the gospel has to change lives than to hold on to cynicism and to hold on to grudges and unforgiveness. He's willing to bet his life on that in favor of holding on to his cynicism. And by the way, the whole history of the kingdom of God on the earth was dramatically impacted by that moment because Paul, again, goes on to be his partner in ministry. They plant tons of churches and Paul goes on to write 13 letters at least in the New Testament. And you can trace that back to Barnabas going, you know what, I'll be the first guy to trust him. I'll be the first guy to welcome him and embrace him as family. And it, it's, it's amazing. This is a, I hope you're seeing the redemptive power of this story. This is beautiful. Um, about a month ago, 
our staff team, we, we got away for a day of prayer and vision. And um, I've been praying a lot for our church, you guys, and the future of the church. I've been praying for the future of Bend. Our, again, our dream is to see an awakening to the gospel when your friends and coworkers can't resist the love of Jesus and that we're coming to faith in Jesus by the thousands. That would be amazing. That's our dream. I've been praying on Tuesday mornings. You know, everywhere I go, people know Bend for a place that has like great beer and cool outdoor adventure. I'm like, okay, that's fine. But I want Ben to be known as this place where people are just alive with Jesus and there's a movement of the gospel that's happening here. I would love that if that were what we were known for. So keep praying to that end. But together we're praying uh, as a team. And, you know, one of the reflections that I've had over the last couple of years, there's not a single pastor I know. And I know a lot of pastors. I've got a lot of friends who do this kind of work. There's not a single pastor I know who's not more cynical and burnt out by people now than they were two years ago. It's like a universal thing that's going on. And there's lots of reasons for that. Again, this is a social profession. And so in this case, and times are hard, there's lots of transference going on where people will like take the pain and the hurt from their, 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 their story or whatever and just like apply it to you. It's your fault that it's happening. So many pastors have gone through this in ways that are, it's really hard to deal with. And so um, many of my pastor friends, they become guarded and not really sure about the future. And I don't know if I can keep doing this, trusting church people again. It's been like really difficult to do that. And again, I can appreciate and understand all that, but we're having this conversation as a staff team. And I'm going, you know what? It's, it, we're, let's not judge the fact that that's where a lot of people are because we can kind of get it. But it's time for us to break off cynicism from our hearts. It's time for us to open ourselves up to the reality that God has called us to lead a community of people who forge stubbornly loyal uh, relationships with one another. And sure, it's great that we share some things in common. We definitely have him in common, but the most important thing is that we're all united under Jesus. Disagree, have different varied backgrounds and all of that, of course, sure. But we wanna be the kinds of people who aggressively push out cynicism out of our hearts and instead receive the faith and the generous love of Jesus so it can be poured out on all of you and hopefully a vibrant, growing community. I believe that the community of, of faith, the church, is the ecosystem of spiritual vitality, meaning that together, not in isolation, but together is where we grow into maturity. Much more on that as we get into our theory of change. So again, we believe, again, that cynicism says people don't change. Cynicism says people will always hurt us. That's what we've been conditioned to believe culturally speaking. And the last two years have been like really good evidence to that fact. I'm not trying to take away from that. But the greater, more powerful reality is that Jesus said that we are made new in him. And if we believe that for ourselves, then it means we believe it for people who are different from us, people who follow after Jesus who are different from us. See, the scripture doesn't teach that, uh, that Paul entered the church in Jerusalem as some completed mature Christian. It's like the furthest thing from the case. What we find is like, especially in those early years, wherever Paul goes, he causes all kinds of problems. He's brash. He's picking fights with literally everyone. And he's bringing a lot of heat down on the church because he just won't shut up. And so um, he's uh, bringing a lot of uh, negative attention to the church. 
And this is just what's going on in the early years of Paul. And Barnabas is accepting of that reality and that fact. Um, Paul's what I like to call an extra grace person. Don't, don't be hurt by that. Let, just hear me out for a second. An extra grace person is one of those people that you need a little bit of extra grace to put up with them. You have like a liking issue with them. You know what I'm talking about? Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. These are people where their personality or just their way of being in the world, it just doesn't mix well with yours. It's like they're, they make you uncomfortable or awkward or maybe they're just like Paul. They have major character flaws that are right on the surface so that everyone can see. Maybe they have just all kinds of trauma and hurt and they're just hurting other people left and right. And they really bother you. And that's like, again, it's, it, it's okay. And I get the feeling that other believers in that first century church with Barnabas were like, okay, man, thank you. Yes, you're right. Jesus loves us. And that means we need to embrace everybody as family. That includes this guy who we really can't stand. But come on, he is cramping our style. Like he doesn't get what we're doing here. He's causing all kinds of problems. Oh my gosh. And by the way, my wife is kind of like Barnabas in my life. She's so kind and generous and compassionate with people that it's like annoying and inconvenient sometimes times. <laughs> she's like in the front row shocked that I would say that. It's so true. Her, her, her kindness is disruptive and uh, it can be mildly or majorly inconvenient at times. And, and I think that that's what, how the, I think that's how the early Christians felt about Barnabas. They're like, okay, we get it. Like we have to embrace him, but can't we embrace him from like a really far distance? Can we like keep them way out there? For, like that would be way more convenient for us if we didn't have to like treat him like a brother, if we didn't have to welcome him in. You see, the reason why I think that God is asking us not to just pretend we love people from a distance, but actually embrace people as family is because it's exactly what Jesus did with us. It's exactly what he did with us. And I believe that we need to, like Barnabas, love well indiscriminately. That's actually the point of Jesus' love, is it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate. And again, we live in this time where we have bifurcated out into these really small little tribes where we all sort of generally agree with these nine things. And again, it's not that all of that is bad, but when it comes to life in the family of God, none of us have the right to close off fellowship or break fellowship with people who don't conform to our secondary values. It's about Jesus and the gospel. That's primary. So we need to love indiscriminately because that's what Jesus teaches us to do, but also because for some people, you might be an extra grace person. I mean, not you. I mean, to us, you're fantastic. You're so kind. We love you. We have a lot of the same interests, so no one would ever say that about you. But honestly, though, people, come on, are we being real? Like, we are extra great. Like, I am definite, like, without a doubt in my mind, an extra grace person to a lot of people. Like, most of you are like, oh, he's, he's, yeah, I like him. Some of you kind of put up with me. But then to a Christian nationalist, I am a nightmare, like, sincerely. And I'm glad that that's fun for some of you or whatever. But the reality is that the reason I say that is, um, is because, um, because if, if I expect that everyone is going to embrace my perspective. It's just completely irrational. It's completely irrational. The point is not that everyone is going to embrace my perspective or like it or like how I choose to teach about it. You know, I can get pretty 
loud and, and, and whatever. And, and there have been some people in our town that have really not liked a lot of what I've had to say, especially these last couple of years. And again, all of that is to be expected. And for me to expect that all of you and everyone else in the family of God would like what I have to say is irrational. But because of the love of Jesus and the way that he has loved us, the burden is on all of us to love one another even when they're kind of an extra grace person for us or even when we disagree. In fact, Jesus would argue that that's when real love gets started. He says, everybody can love their tribe. Really easy to do that. Everyone does that. He says, my love picks up where that leaves off. And that's the measure of genuine Christian love. So a uniformity and groupthink is not the goal of the church. Uniformity, groupthink, not the goal. The goal is familial devotion. That's one of the primary goals of the church is familial devotion. Uh, One of our friends in Portland says that God is way more concerned with your commitment than your maturity because he knows that through commitment, you actually get maturity. Again, that goes down to our theory of change. We're going to get into all kinds of spiritual formation as we get along in this letter. So I believe this is why God gave us the golden rule. Uh, Golden rule, the end of Matthew chapter 7, all of the world basically accepts and endorses the golden rule, but originally it was from Jesus at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, which we studied at length last year. He says this, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do for you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Amen. Come on, you guys. Come on. This is, this is um, the, I think, what is rattling around in Barnabas' brain when he's feeling for Paul out in the cold, alone, isolated. No one trusts him. He goes, well, I guess I will then. I'll take that risky step. And I appreciate that so much. Um, you guys familiar with the, with the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Amazing 20th century German theologian who's a rising star in the 1930s to the point where he's this beautiful academic and he got hired on, I think it was Yale School of Theology. Somebody here can correct me on that. But he was in, he was in Germany and he got hired on at a seminary in the Northeast. And so he moved over to the Northeast and he, he writes about how he kind of felt like he had dodged a bullet because the Third Reich is rising and there's all kinds of animosity and hate and obviously genocide that's going on in Germany at the time. And he feels like he kind of got the parachute out of that. And then as he got into his studies and he got into his work there, within a few short months, he felt convicted that he needed to go back to his homeland, Germany, and to be a part of the solution. That's where the quote came from, that the only thing that's required for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. That phrase came from Dietrich Bonhoeffer around this time and in that situation. And so he leaves his really prestigious safe post here in the States and he goes back to Germany and founds a theology school of his own. And the hallmark of their theology school is they all live together in the same place. And they uh, teach theology. And the other thing that they're doing is they're undermining Hitler and the Third Reich at this very same time. 
They're finding avenues and ways in order to rescue uh, Jews who are, are on their way to death camps. And they're involved in all of these plots to overthrow Hitler and, and, and the Third Reich. He, of course, ends up paying the ultimate price. He dies within a few years of him moving back to Germany. And uh, he's not even 40 years old when he's killed. But he left us this incredible legacy of what it is to love well in the midst of this insane amount of evil. And he wrote this incredible book called Life Together. If you're going to read any book on what it is to be a person of Jesus in the family of God, ah, this is the book to read besides the Bible. And in this, he, he, writes, he, he writes this. He says, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it sprung from a wish dream. And a serious Christian sit down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a period in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Man, it's such a, like a heavy and dense concept. But in case you missed it, what he's saying is that the sooner that our idealistic expectations of one another are shattered, the better for everyone. Because as long as we have these idealistic expectations of one another, uh, we're not really ready to love them. Because the reality is that, man, I am not living up to whatever idealistic expectations that you have of me. And you can't live up to mine. And so instead of actually living in Christian community together, we're going to keep hoping and, and, and dreaming and skipping off to other little Christian communities, hoping that maybe this one will finally get it right and be the exact kind of friend and brother and sister that I need, as opposed to embracing the reality that everyone in the family of God, myself and yourself included, are just people in process who are needing to be loved. This is why I say that community is the ecosystem of spiritual vitality, because our community is a, a mirror back to us, our expectations, the ideals that we have, also the character flaws that we have, and the ways that we need to grow. You all have helped me see that, and I've hopefully helped you see the areas in life where God is calling you to grow. As long as you option out and eject out of the Christian community, I do not believe you will grow consequently in life, uh, substantively in life. It's actually in sort of the messiness of life together that we actually find genuine maturity. It's over the course, our theory of change is that um, it all begins with Jesus on the cross, giving his life for your and my sin. Now that we are awake and alive in a new creation, the journey begins just like it did for Paul, for Barnabas, a lifelong process of discipleship where under the influence of the presence of the Holy Spirit and through the study of scripture and through community, we gradually grow we gradually grow and we become more whole and more Jesus-like people. Not in an instant. I can't expect that of you in 
a year or two years, over a lifetime. There's a reason why the people that I genuinely respect and honor in my life right now are at least 30 years older than me, who've been walking faithfully with Jesus for the entire time. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that if uh, you are old, it means that you are wise and experienced and uh, fully formed disciples. It just means that everyone who is a genuine, mature Jesus follower has invested their life in the process and in the journey. And Jesus says the mark of the one who, who is mature is the one who's able to love when it's hard. That's the metric that Jesus gives us. It's not, this is not my ideas, my words. It's what Jesus tells us. We are a people to be loved. Discipleship is this lifelong journey. Okay, let me end with this. I know I've been rambling. Thanks for hanging, you guys. Allie is just, just like my, my, my friend, my sister. I love you, Allie. Allie's like, if you don't know who Allie is, she's the one who's been like saying, amen, yes, come on, like the whole time, which I love. And she's also um, the founder of Hear the Cry Brazil, which is where we are supporting and helping. Um, so we love you, Allie. You're the best. Yeah, nice. So uh, again, this is something that never leaves Paul. Barnabas has, has, has shown him what real love and wisdom is, and it never leaves Paul. Because Paul, Barnabas was able to be like, give him extra grace that he needed to be a guy in process. When he was alone, when he couldn't be trusted, Barnabas is the one who says, I'll, I'll trust you. I'll bring you in. Because Barnabas was able to give him that extra grace, we have Paul, the apostle. And he never forgot it. And so now this is more than a decade later, after they've planted these churches, and there are Jewish Christians, Jewish Christian leaders who are actively trying to exclude, suggesting that Gentile brothers and sisters cannot belong in the family. Not because they were villains like Paul was, but because they did not conform to their secondary values. And Paul, like, like the letter of Galatians is like an eruption of like holy fury at the injustice of that. And he's crying out for justice. He's crying out. He says, no, love in the family is not earned and it is not withheld because they haven't gotten in on your program. You don't get to withhold access and belonging in the family of God. That's not how it works. We are one under King Jesus. We all have equal footing before him. No one has greater standing because of their theological background or their ideological heritage or their religious pedigree. None of that matters. Everyone is one and united under Christ. And Paul is like, you, you cannot, like the, the whole gospel's at stake here. That's why he's writing it. And he's so, he's like the gospel's at stake. See, Barnabas was a kind, temperate, wise man who kind of got his message across in that gentle way. Whereas Paul is like this apostolic tornado of energy who's just going like, this cannot happen. We have to fight for, I'm willing to die for the gospel because this is what's at stake. And so all we have to do now is to just essentially respond. We just need to respond to the message, respond to him. And Here's how I want to do that. I just want to guide you through a little reflection. Number one, what is your role in embracing the Christian family? What is your role in it? I've got a role. You have a role. Remember Barnabas, like I said a minute ago, he's like this kind and temperate guy. I have a feeling that when he walked into the room, everyone's like, oh, yes, he's here. That's amazing. Uh, Barnabas is here. 
And then Paul is like still, even like to his dying day, he's getting into fights all the time. He's never backing down from a fight on the gospel. He's just like vehemently about it all the time. So you may relate with one of those or none of those or whatever, but the point is like, what is your role in the family and the love of the family? Because again, I, I, I know I've heard so many stories over the last year of those of you who have been hurt by people inside and outside of the church. You don't know you, who you can trust. And again, trust me, I get it. I'm not trying to minimize it at all. But what we learn from Barnabas is that somebody has to go first. Somebody has to go first, has to be willing to take the lead in the charge. And of course that was difficult. Of course that was risky. But uh, but Barnabas was the guy who said, you know what? I, I believe that the gospel is power, powerful enough to change even this religious terrorist. So I, I'm going to risk it and I'm going to trust and I'm going to love him. So again, what is your role? What is your role in bringing this kind of um, familial devotion back to the church for the rebuilding of the church? Number two is for any of you who are feeling lonely. Again, I know. I'm not trying to minimize the fact that these last couple of years have been disillusioning to say the least. In fact, you might think, man, Bonhoeffer said it well. This has been disillusioning. I used to have way more friends than I do now. Like, man, like we, we used to not talk about the things that divided us. And, and now like, because I wore a mask, like this person can't hang with me anymore. We didn't have a conversation about it. It was just like, boom. Ejected out of my life. And whatever that issue is, you could fall on any side of whatever conversation that's polarizing right now. The point is to not bicker about the details. But the point is like, man, that's something to actually grieve. It's okay to be sad. Like I've been saddened by that for sure. It didn't used to be this hard to get along. And it used to be this hard to say, yeah, we're one in Christ. For whatever reason, a lot of things I don't understand, many things outside of our control, that's where we find ourselves today. So I'm sorry if you feel lonely. But I also want to remind you that you're actually not alone. Because number one, of course, you have the Heavenly Father. He's with you. Jesus said, I will be with you till the end of the age. That's he doesn't say empty words. You can take that one. You can believe that. He's with you. Secondly, it may shock you to find out that there are people to your left and right who felt the exact same way that you have felt. I know because I've heard at least 100 stories. So you are not alone. You're estranged from family. You're estranged from coworkers. You're like, again, it's hard. I get it. You are not alone. And again, we are far from a perfect church. Like, don't internalize that at all. Like, I have failed you, will continue to fail you, <laughs> and so will the people around you. But the reality is that, man, we do, we are committed to this. At, our, at the deepest part of who we are as a group of Jesus people is this reality, this base reality that Jesus said to love and to love indiscriminately. And so welcome, want you, want you to belong. We're willing to go first. Will you, will you as well? Uh, number three, has cynicism crept into your heart? 
Again, let's not even bother judging it. Because we get it, like, yeah. Cynicism's a real thing, especially in our society. Again, I believe that's toxic to church unity. I believe it's time for us to break off cynicism and to replace it with genuine love. And so that's just going to require you acknowledging it before God and releasing it to him and saying, God, I don't, I don't wanna like, have a legacy of being a safe old cynic. I actually wanna have a legacy of like the same kind of reckless love that you have. I wanna be that kind of person. And uh, second to last, and that's just this, are, are, you, um, are you withholding your family devotion to someone or some people over secondary views? over views about politics, over ideology, over skin color? Are you withholding your devotion to them over that? I think these are the things that grieves God's heart. The point again is not condemnation or even judgment. The, the point is, okay, God, we're convicted by your spirit and we're ready. We're ready to embrace the ones that you've told us to embrace. And then finally, who are you inviting into the family? Again, someone needs to go first. For those of you who, are, who feel alone and who feel like, like you're estranged from the people that you love and all of the stuff, are you willing to invite? Are you willing to embrace? Are you willing to go first in that way? And so I just, I just wanna, again, none of these things are heavy handed. Don't get that. Get pure invitation from Jesus. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Jesus, we, we come before you. We open our hands and we just invite your spirit to come. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you that you're alive, Jesus. Thank you that at the cross, you dealt with our sin and, and our decay and the things that kept us from you. And you indiscriminately loved us. And we recognize that that's our response now. We just pray you would do the work in our hearts. I pray for those who are lonely, God. I pray that you would bring friendship, bring communion and intimacy in. God, I pray for anyone who is just wrestling through cynicism and like not being able to trust people. Again, God, we just pray that you would help remove that. Gently, God, we pray you would heal that. And in the name of Jesus, we just pray that you would uh, restore, restore hope, restore faith. Faith in your promise that when you say someone's made new, it's true, it's real, it's, it's good. God, I pray that in your grace, you would refine our hearts. If there's any wicked way in us, if there's any way that we have rejected or, or, or withheld our familiar, our, our devotion to sisters and brothers over something that's not you and not the gospel, God, we, we pray you would cleanse us of that, that sin and that wrong-headed thinking. And I pray that you would replace it with your way of thinking, which is to have arms open for the ones 
that need extra grace. Would you make us that kind of people today? In Jesus' name, everybody said.